0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Quickly before we start today, this episode contains discussion of sexual assault. Sex assault convictions are hard to get. That's likely not news to you. They take a huge toll on the victim. They are prone to being dismissed in court there is often a lack of witnesses, sometimes a lack of evidence. All of those things can derail a case. And that is just a typical case. Now imagine one against a police officer. A longtime veteran officer in Newfoundland's Royal Constabulatory. An insular police force with a long history of defending its own. And now, imagine that case goes to trial and fails, and then fails again while rising to higher levels on appeal. Imagine it ends up at the Supreme Court with the reputation of an almost 300-year-old police force on one side and on the other, Jane Doe, who just refuses to walk away. This is a story about how tough it can be to fight for justice and what can happen when you do. I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Lindsay Jones is the Globe and Mail's Atlantic Canada reporter. She wrote about this case in The Walrus, but any updates to the case will be found in The Globe. Hi, Lindsay. Hi there. Why don't you start today um, by just telling us who is Kelsey Muse and how did she come to meet the woman we're calling Jane Doe at the center of this story?
1: Sure. Well, Kelsey Muse, she was a police officer with the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, and she was working as a patrol officer one night in January 2015. It was just after midnight and she got a call over her police radio for unknown trouble. She heard from the dispatcher that there was a woman who was upset, who was drinking and confused and worried about her safety. And so Kelsey said, I'll go. She drove over to uh, the side of Newfoundland Drive in in the city of St. John's, and she met a woman known today as Jane Doe. And that woman got into the backseat of Kelsey's patrol car and said, I need to tell you something. And, you know, what, what she told Kelsey that night ended up, you know, it became a court case that has just galvanized the city of St. John's for almost a decade now.
0: It is a pretty intense case, and as I understand it, it's having a pretty big legacy, as you mentioned. So maybe uh, just, you know, what did Jane tell her, that, that she would later tell the court more than once?
1: So Jane Doe was sitting in the back of Kelsey's cruiser, And the story just came tumbling out. She was crying and uh, hysterical. And she relayed how she had been sexually assaulted by a police officer in uniform after that officer drove her home from downtown just a couple of weeks earlier. And, And all she knew was that he had short hair, he was taller than her, and he looked to be in his 30s. So she didn't remember anything. She didn't even remember you know, as she would later say in court, whether she consented or not. So Kelsey just right away turned on her dome light and took it, extru- took it very seriously. She pulled over into a, a needs parking lot and she started, you know, in, intently interviewing Jane about what she'd experienced.
0: So I want to know what Kelsey did with this information and how, you know, the case got started. But she's really important to the story. First, can you maybe just give us a deeper sense of her and her career and why this case became so important to her?
1: Well, so Kelsey had always wanted to be a police officer since she was a little girl. She grew up in Sydney, Nova Scotia, and she saw the police officers who came and went from her family's tow truck business at their home and she loved seeing how they were helpful to people who who were in trouble or who something went wrong and police officers were there and so that that was where the idea of what a police officer was formed in her mind as a child and so she was she's a sensitive kid but she she followed her her dream to become a police officer and so you know her first post after attending police academy was in the city of St. John's. And, you know, she she started there as a as a young woman in a police force where the they were the minority, which, mm-hmm. you know, in many forces that women still are a minority. And you know, it was a real rude awakening for her to see some of the, the violence and domestic situations that she was sent to.
0: When she realized what Jane was telling her, how did she proceed? You know, what steps did she take uh, I understand how difficult it can be in these situations when an officer is accused of this kind of crime.
1: So as soon as Kelsey absorbed what Jane was saying, she told me she felt really sad. Right away, she believed her. And part of that belief came from what she'd witnessed in her own career. And that was inappropriate, sometimes illegal sexual behavior, at uh, the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, and it had always been brushed aside. And so w- when when she heard Jane's account, she decided, I'm not going to let this go. I'm going to, you know, she strategized. And so she, she knew how hard it was for a woman to come forward in the first place, for someone to report a case of sexual assault. She also knew there were many... In many cases, reports of sexual violence are deemed unfounded by police or baseless, which means no arrest, no trial, no conviction, no punishment. And so instead of filing a report in the computer system, which she normally would, she wrote a note which she hand-delivered to a a sergeant working that night. It was someone she trusted.
0: And how do you go forward from there? Like, it's kind of, I guess, maybe a— Maybe secretive is the wrong word for the process, but it must be a very low-key process. And and how do you go about figuring out who the cop in question is and performing that investigation in the middle of a force like this?
1: Well, at the time, the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary didn't have a mechanism for investigating its own. And so, yeah, it had to be done um, undercover. (laughs) And so the officers who were involved were very careful to not let it get out, it that they were investigating one of their own. And so it was that Sergeant Tim Hogan who began looking at records and communications logs to see where, where cars that were signed out by police officers, you know, where those cars were on the night in question that Jane reported that this happened to her. And so, you know, some things started to reveal themselves. There was a car that had been parked outside Jane Doe's address. The communication logs revealed that dispatch had called for the officer who, you know, that car was signed out to a couple of times around the time of the, the sexual assault. And so police eventually went to the home and seized a cushion that they saw had bodily fluid on it from, from Jane's apartment, and they took it to be tested for DNA.
0: And what did they find? And even once you've got that, how do you go about finding who it belongs to?
1: Well, so by this time police had an idea of who it was based on who whose vehicle was was parked outside. Right. And so they needed to prove it. So or they needed they needed more evidence. So they involved the RCMP because it was getting to a point where, you know, the the officer who was suspected of this sexual assault, you know, couldn't be trailed by his own uh, co-workers. Mm -hmm. And so RCMP officers staked him out while he was off duty and uh, they seized a white mug from a Starbucks. So he'd been drinking from this white mug, discarded it, and they took it and slipped it into an evidence bag. And from there, the DNA was tested and it showed a near-perfect match for an officer named Carl... Douglas Snellgrove,
0: what did they know about him at the time? Who was he? Any prior incidents?
1: So, I mean, he was from from everyone that I've spoken to who's worked in the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. he he wasn't someone that people would have suspected could be responsible for this type of behavior. He was a thirty seven year old married street patrol cop, and he'd been on the force for a decade.
0: What happens at that point when the case goes to court and the police are prosecuting one of their own? And this is where I guess this case becomes a a touch point for the community.
1: Yeah, so it was like the, the Crown prosecutes the police officer who's been charged. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there were other officers that had to come into the court and testify for the prosecution. And so, yeah, it was it was very sensitive. And, you know, for, for Kelsey in particular, she knew she was doing the right thing. But she definitely felt that added layer of pressure of, you know, that she was an outcast now. From her colleagues,
0: tell me about the. I mean, for lack of a better term, he said, she said, when the two testified in court, uh, as you describe it in your piece, there are two very different tones to the testimony.
1: I mean, the one thing about Doug Snellgrove is that he's a police officer, so he has this built-in trust and credibility, and he's he's had the privilege of that for a decade working on the force. And so he's coming at this, you know, he's an he's older than her and he has this experience in the justice system, having, you know, worked as a police officer around it for so many years. And so, you know, he he gave his side of the story, which was that it was consensual and, you know, Jane did not have a recollection of it being consensual. She can't remember what happened and the next morning you know, she she was hurt. She was in pain. She had abrasions on her. And this was a, a man in uniform in a position of power who
0: was on the job. And how did the jury decide or the court decide?
1: Well, in that first trial, the case against Snellborough, well, in any sexual assault trial, the, the case rests on the definition of consent. And consent is only legal when both parties agree to it. And So, you know, it it has to be communicated and it can't be inferred through silence or passivity. And so that was the prosecution hoped that the jury would find Snellgrove guilty based on the on the testimony, Jane's testimony. In the first trial, there was also, you know, this was brought up. The prosecutor argued that the judge needed to instruct the jury on a provision around abuse of power, trust, and authority around committing sexual crimes. And so the Crown was confident that, you know, if the jury would come to see that Jane couldn't have consented because she she couldn't remember whether she had or not, she was unconscious or too drunk, that Snellgrove was responsible because of his position of power. But the justice would not allow the jury to be instructed on that provision. And so the jury made its decision of not guilty based on, you know, the definition of consent or, you know, consent must be communicated voluntarily and affirmatively through words or conduct. So that, yeah, that led to an appeal and the appeal was granted. And then there was a mistrial. And then on the third trial, The jury was allowed to consider that provision, a position of power and trust, only after it was affirmed by the Supreme Court of Canada. So Snellgrove appealed, asked the Supreme Court of Canada to rule on that. He didn't think it should apply. The Supreme Court of Canada affirmed it and the jury convicted him.
0: Now tell me how we got from that first not guilty verdict to those appeals being possible, and the perseverance of Jane Doe. Because after that not guilty verdict, that is where a lot of accusations of this nature against police end. But as you mentioned, the community was clearly involved in this one. Tell me about the scene.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, the night that Snellgrove was found not guilty after the first trial— the The city uh, just erupted. I mean, there were the next morning there was eggs splattered on the court doors. There was graffiti all over the downtown. Profanity used with Royal Newfoundland Constabulary cops are rapists. Like that, the, there were a lot of people up in arms over that decision. And Jane told me that you know she she was just like crumpled after that verdict. It wasn't until she saw, she drove downtown that night and saw the protest the night of the verdict and, and heard people chanting and saw this movement and felt angry. Like she saw their anger and realized, you know, I need to keep going. And so it was, that was a, that was a huge turning point that the community, the people of St. John's helped helped her along in this.
0: What was the process like for her of, you know, having to go back and then get a mistrial and go back again and then have to watch an appeal? And who was there helping her and how involved were members uh, of the community, I guess?
1: I mean, she is just, she has her ups and her downs, and she's got a lot of great support. And there are a lot of people who have reached out to her through this campaign that a woman in St. John's has organized Ashley McDonald called the Thank You Campaign. And so people have been sending thank you cards to Jane, like lovely handwritten notes and cards and drawings and words of encouragement from like people from all over Newfoundland, people from all over Canada, She's collected them. They're in a shoebox, and when she feels down, when when she hits a roadblock, like there have been so many in this mm-hmm. case, she she pulls them out and she reads them, and it, it's made a huge difference for her. And then this thank you campaign has continued with billboards popping up around the city, and you know signage on social media, and in people's windows around their homes, and bumper stickers, and so. You know, that all of that has been, you know, very helpful for her in terms of staying positive.
0: In terms of a lasting impact, you know, it's not lost on me that this whole case is kind of unfolding against the the backdrop of Me Too. And that once Jane persevered and, and got to a conviction, the story of the case doesn't end there. What happened in terms of the community's relationship with the RNC and nasty things coming to light, I guess?
1: So after Jane finally got a conviction, other things started to come out around, around the city. And Lynn Moore, she's a fierce litigator who is a supporter for, for women who have faced sexual assault and sexual harassment. And she got a call one day from someone who had reputable information that the, the issue around a police officer committing sexual assault on the job was more right, widespread than just one person. So she put out a tweet, and that tweet just, it led to a snowball of phone calls and communications with Lynn. She started hearing from all, from all kinds of women who told her their experiences of being sexually assaulted by on-duty police officers.
0: The last thing that I want to ask about is Kelsey, who was an integral part of this, and what happened to her afterwards? Without her believing the initial victim, none of this happens, right?
1: That's right. And her strength of character and her judgment and, you know, her solidarity with Jane as a woman, like all of that shone through in her story in this Article. What I noticed as a someone, you know, looking in on this story from outside and writing about it was that women realized that they could be believed after Jane Doe. And she bolstered them to to be able to to feel like they could come forward and finally tell someone about what happened to them. And, And you know, coming back to Kelsey you know, her words to me that she didn't report some of the harassment and inappropriate touching. I'm not going to term it sexual assault, even though it it probably is, but that's, in her words, that is how she described it. And, you know, coming back to that, as the writer of this whole story, the fact that she'd experienced all that previously in her life as a police officer and that that is what informed her decision to believe Jane. Like, to me, that is, that is really powerful. And then her decision all those years ago to not report the inappropriate behavior of other officers because she thought, who's going to believe me? Who's going to believe a drunk girl over a police officer? You know, and that's, that's how the story ends. And I think now people do. People do believe women over a police officer.
0: Lindsay, thanks so much for this. Thanks for walking us through the case.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Lindsay Jones, the Atlantic Canada reporter for The Globe and Mail, which is, by the way, where you can find any further updates to this case. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. If you have anything you'd like to talk to us about, whether it's this episode, a previous episode, or an episode that doesn't exist yet that you would like to see, you can get in touch with us. There are three ways to do that. The first is finding us on Twitter at the Big Story FPN. The second is with an email to hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. And the third is with a phone call and a voicemail at 416-935-5935. You can find The Big Story and, by the way, its spin-off show which launched last week called In This Economy, everywhere you get podcasts, If you haven't checked out In This Economy yet, I hope you'll give it a shot and uh, use those methods I just mentioned to get in touch with us and let us know what you think of that show. Either way, whatever show you listen to, thank you for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.